0: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear.
1: We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So welcome to the show, dress listeners. Today's podcast is, interestingly enough, something that April and I had both considered for a fashion history mystery episode, but it turned out to be so much more, so we've made it a full-length episode. It uh, was originally a question that came from us from a listener at SK Monday. She asked, when did they begin putting lycra in denim? I wear vintage denim because I dislike the stretch. And this was an incredibly great question. I think, especially thanks to the recent uh, trend for high-waisted jeans, I have picked up more than a few pairs of 1990s non-stretch denim, and I do love them. I'm wearing some now, uh, but that said, they are definitely in addition to my more contemporary blue jeans, which definitely have stretch. I. Uh, what about you, April? I don't think I've actually ever seen you in blue jeans, actually. <laughs> I do own blue jeans,
0: a few pair. And actually, my boyfriend says that all the time, too. He's like, You never wear jeans. Um, but that also, I think, has something to do with the fact that I do try to wear mainly vintage clothes. And to go out and buy vintage jeans to me, I don't know, it seems somewhat, um, you know, it's a lot of work to find it's jeans. It's hard. That yeah. Fit you. Exactly. I, and when I do wear jeans, I tend to mainly wear um, Levi's because they, I know, I know, I know they fit. So. That's probably the reason why.
1: Yeah, and I've read a few articles recently that attribute this stretchy jeans phenomenon to the early 2000s um, and kind of coinciding with the rise of the so-called skinny jean, which was a fad-turned-wardrobe staple to this day. I mean, we really haven't gone away from that. Uh, But in fact, this origin story about stretchy denim goes back decades prior, the start of which has nothing to do with jeans at all, surprisingly – and our origin story actually starts in 1959. 1959 was the year that Joseph
0: C. Shivers, who was a textile scientist at the chemical company DuPont, he perfected a synthetic fiber known as spandex. So, um, interesting side note, spandex is an anagram of the word expands.
1: Did we know that? that. Yeah. Mean, so interesting.
0: <laughs> um, and, and it took him um, an entire decade to... Um, you know, perfect and develop this fiber. And DuPont, interestingly enough, was originally founded as a gunpowder mill by the French-American chemist. Um, His name was Huthier-Irani DuPont in 1802. And, And the company would only continue to grow and prosper. And by the early 20th century, it had really become a world leader and innovator in polymer development. So a few of their innovations include the invention of neoprene. Nylon, Teflon, mylar, Tyvek, which we use in um, archival for our archival purposes, sometimes in fashion collections. Um, but all um, you know, for all of our intents and purposes today, um, their innovation that we're really here to talk about is Lycra.
1: Yeah. And so according to author Kaori O'Connor in her chapter, The Body and the Brand, How Lycra Shaped America, which was featured in the book Producing Fashion, the DuPont Textile Fibers Department was only formed in 1952, but it actually quickly became the company's most popular division. And it was at this time in the 1950s that the company began really to recognize the role of women as significant consumers. I mean, especially in relation to their consumption of various undergarments. And after they did a pretty extensive market research, they realized that women really wanted a better solution for the fibers used in their girdles. So we talked a little bit about this in our swimsuit episode. Um, This use of rubber in girdles, but this is 1959 after all, and women are still very much in the grip of Dior's new look silhouette, although it's all about to change. Uh, But the go-to material was rubber, and it just was not that reliable of a material at all. And DuPont
0: had been developing synthetic elastic fibers since at least the 1930s. We, we just mentioned nylon, but it wasn't until 1959 that it was finally ready to be marketed as a rubber alternative. And, and, you know, a fiber that could withstand high heat and maintain its original structure after being stretched, but also at the same time, the same could not be said for rubber. And it was originally known or labeled fiber K, and DuPont chose not to use this name, probably for obvious reasons. It's not very sexy, right? <laughs> <laughs> they they decided to trademark their new innovative material instead as Lycra. And while Lycra might be one of the most well-known producers of this type of spandex material, there are other brands out there um, for spandex, including Alaspan, Asipora, Dorlastan, to name a few. Spandex is the name used mostly in America for this type of elastic material. But in Europe, it's also referred to um, in other names, including elastane or just simply elastic.
1: Yeah, the various versions of elastic. So um, spandex, of course, being this generic term used for this stretchy material. Uh, But DuPont went full steam ahead promoting their new material this huge publicity campaign they paired with fabric manufacturers, such as a company known as Lawson, to advertise their product. Quote, consistent with their reputation for leadership in the newest and finest in girdle fabrics, Lawson now announces the creation of special new fabrics designed to take full advantage of the completely unique features of Lycra. Lawson, with the use of Lycra, has been able to make fabrics with excellent tensile strength, long flex life, high resistance to stretch, distortion, abrasion, and heat degradation.
0: Well, Cass, that explains Lycra's use in girdle
1: fabrics, but when does it make its way into women's jeans? Because
0: I think this is going to be a bit of a leap.
1: (laughs) It is. It's a long way from girdles to jeans, although maybe not actually, as we will learn. So, and it's a question that needed a bit of deciphering. So, because April, if we're going to be extra fashion nerdy, which I think we will and our listeners do appreciate, we should probably distinguish between women's denim pants and jeans because one of these things is not like the other. Mm-hmm.
0: You would be correct because well denim was A popular fabric during the 1950s for women's clothing, it was used, especially in American fashion, I would say, American sportswear in particular, it was used in a whole host of types of different clothing, including tops, skirts, dresses, pants, and jeans. But jeans are a very specific type of denim pant that's distinguished by its button or zip front, its pockets, and also rivets, right? I mean, that's kind of what we think of as blue jeans.
1: Right. Rivets is the most distinguishing factor of blue jeans. And the birth of the blue jean, as we know, it can be traced all the way back to 1873 when a dry goods merchant by the name of, let's see who can guess it, April already mentioned it today, but (laughs) Levi Strauss. Yes, that Levi Strauss was a human before he was your favorite blue jean. And he collaborated with a tailor by the name of Jacob Davis, and they obtained a U.S. patent for a process they created for putting rivets on men's work pants. So traditionally, men's work pants had been made from denim cloth. And they put these rivets at the point of strain. So, like, you look at the pocket corners, the bottom of the button fly, et cetera, anywhere that was really susceptible to more wear, Um, The rivet idea was actually conceived of by Jacobs, but he had purchased the cloth to make his pants from Levi, and thus the modern jean was born. Its distinguishing feature, again, being those riveted pockets. And I think
0: our executive producer, Holly Fry, did an episode about this on Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: Am I correct? That is correct. You can hear all about Levi Strauss and the origin of his company and one of the most famous jean brands of all time on Stuff You Missed in History Class.
0: Check it out. Mm-hmm. And so nylon had also been used in women's ski pants since the 1950s. Uh, they were kind of nicknamed scholastic ski pants, um, <laughs> which apparently they were all the rage, at least from 1955 onwards. Um, and, and it was nylon, not lycra, that Cone Mills was using when it advertised its cone stretch denim. Um, and the fiber content in this, they were saying, was 71% cotton and 29% nylon in 1962. And their advertisement presents a very happy woman jumping in the middle splits above the slogan, quote, the denim that really moves at Neiman Marcus. It's the denim with the built-in comfort, fit,
1: and freedom. So in 1963, you also have Irwin Mills Expandra stretch denim using DuPont nylon for jeans for the whole family. Their ad reads, fits the American way of life because it fits so well. Bends without binding, stretches without sagging. Expander stretch denim is ideal for everything in sportswear. Ski pants to shorts, jackets to contoured tops, and shirts. And in 1965,
0: you see the very first ads for stretch wranglers, whose stretch denim jeans are made from a combo of cotton and Monsanto blue C nylon. Of course, their denim comes in blue. But it also came in electric green and acid yellow, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, You know, because of course, denim doesn't have to be blue. The actual term denim is referring to a specific twill fabric
1: weave. Right. Originally produced in Denim plance.
0: And we will. We've gotten lots of requests for an episode on denim. So we might get into this a little bit further later on in the season with Emma
1: McClendon. Absolutely. So stretchy denim, while not specifically using Lycra at this point, became a huge hit during the 1960s, and that is because the companies aligned their advertising with comfort and fit. And these are two increasingly important elements in the 1960s Youthquake Revolution, which we've talked about a little bit on this show, although we are going to get into it a bit more later in the season, so stay tuned. But so... The new look of the 1950s sent fashion back to the pre-Edwardian era, it could be argued, because you have these corseted, girdled waists, these wide-flowing skirts, and the 1960s is really a time when we finally start to see women's clothing move towards the practical, the comfortable, the freeing. You know, the 1960s really freed women from hundreds of years of restrictive beauty standards, and for many, many women, this was the era where there was just no turning back.
0: And the '60s also saw a sort of shattering of a whole host of gender traditions and standards, especially this idea that women wore skirts and men wore pants, um, and and you may have listened, our listeners may have listened to our Amelia Bloomer episode. Um, And thanks to that, we know that bold women have always been challenging these standards since the 19th century. And, And we've also talked about how as sportswear developed in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, it became more and more acceptable for women to wear pants in casual settings and at home. But Cast in the 1960s, women wearing pants in public for kind of like more public-facing occasions was still, you know, questionable, perhaps. (laughs) Um, And and jeans in particular are really most famously associated with hippie counterculture movement. Um, But more and more women across the social strata were adopting not only pants in general, but also jeans and On a fun side note, I may or may not have gone to Boston this weekend to be working on an upcoming episode that has something to do with women wearing pants. It's not entirely about that, but just a little teaser. (laughs) And I did post a few things about it on our Instagram stories.
1: So coming soon. And we are very excited for that. So SK Monday, to answer your question specifically, it would appear that DuPont did not start putting actual lycra into denim specifically until 1972. Although, again, that was just the first ad I found for it. There certainly could have been other renditions, uh, but nothing appearing in fashion magazine ProQuest searches. So... In 1979, a company by the name of Jeannage was selling lycra denim pants. And in 1981, Cone began advertising their new Cone Stretch Lycra denim with a super happy couple who are basically wearing matching denim jeans. So, of course, the 1960s is also famous for this beginning of really androgynous fashion, right? Men and women can wear the same thing, essentially.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, I mean, at this point, jeans had become
0: big big business by the 1980s, and 1981 is the same year of Calvin Klein Jean's now rather iconic and controversial ad campaign, (laughs) which featured a 13-year-old Brooke Shields asking. Oh, I couldn't remember her age. She was 13? Yes, she was 13. Oh, no. And it wasn't like she was a 17-year-old model. She was 13. Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) She does not look 13. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, that'll make what April's about to say even more more scandalous.
0: Yeah. So, it's, it's it was a television commercial, and, and I think there was also a print campaign mm-hmm. um, related to it. And I re- I remember seeing it on TV. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and she says, quote, you want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Oh, no. So, yikes. Um... <laughs> So, basically, also, Calvin was interviewed in Women's Wear Daily in 1979, and he said that at this time when he was already at the helm of this hugely successful multi-million-dollar business saying, jeans are a way of life. And he went on to say, once a woman puts on stretch jeans, I think it's an instant sale, and I haven't felt that strongly about anything in a long time. And apparently, Cass, they were using... Jeans, uh, they were, that her, their, their jeans were cotton, but they were using 1% of Lycra in them. So I think that's kind of a far cry from jeggings that
1: we're talking about that you see people wearing today. So they just had a little bit of gift. It, <laughs> it wasn't a ton. No, and like April said, coming full circle to the present day in the last 10 years when jeggings have the controversial <laughs> garment jeggings. Is it a legging? Is it a... Jean, what is it? Um, I don't quite know yet, but it has a lot of stretch. I'm going to go with a hard no. <laughs> I'm
0: going to pass.
1: Yes. So the jeggings are, of course, quite controversial. And, you know, stretch jeans, as we've mentioned, are now everywhere. Although I will say that there are companies such as Levi that are producing their older style of jeans with button flies and no stretch. Yeah, because people
0: were really asking for it. They're like, no, wait, like go back go back. We want we want these kind of like
1: purist styles. Yeah, because a lot of the thing with stretchy jeans too is, you know, I do have jeans that have stretch in them, but after a while they just really wear out, wear out, wear out. Whereas these jeans without stretch like I said, I'm wearing some right now. They really maintained their shape. Uh, but something that's really interesting, I came across this article a couple of days ago called the Sneaky Way Clothing Brands Hooked Men on Stretch Jeans. So <laughs> that subtitle is Jaking's Rebranded. It's not quite that... Extreme, Extreme. but Amanda Moll writes in her article that clothing brands have been smuggling spandex into the legs of unsuspecting men. The shock, the horror that men are wearing stretch jeans. And she basically talks about how stretch jeans for years and years and years have really been within the domain of women. So like high heels and like skirts that men are adopting, stretch jeans is something that was really feminized And put within this, you know, gender box that we so love on this show. Um, And now that it's coming out of that box, it's a little controversial.
0: And once again, might have something to do with why I went to Boston this weekend.
1: (laughs) So apparently, you know, Gap Flex Rapid Movement Denim, Wrangler's Advanced Comfort, There's this theory seems to be that if you don't advertise it as stretchy material, men will buy it. And they actually interviewed uh, April, one of our favorite fashion historians, Nancy Deal, for this episode. Yay, Nancy! She taught both of us, of course, at FIT. April recently contributed to a book with her on American fashion, and she's a professor of fashion history at NYU. And she was talking about how Just that stretch jeans, quote, stretch jeans go against ideas of male authenticity, the Marlboro Man image that jeans are supposed to have. So, you know, in opposition to women's elastic jeans, there is the other extreme, which is men's salvage denim. So that has no stretch, this really stiff fabric. And actually, that's all my husband wears. But this idea that it's like this hyper masculine thing to wear non-stretch jeans is a really, really interesting concept. To consider, yeah,
0: and really, what's kind of coming out of this is the fact that you know perhaps the fiber itself has been gendered in some mm-hmm. sort of strange way, and and maybe that has to do with its early origins as as being used in women's foundation garments. I mean, we haven't delved into this at all, but it would be very very interesting to like think about and work on the gendering of elastic or spandex textiles.
1: Absolutely. And I think it has to do, too, with the idea that elastic helps clothing form fit to the body. So, you know, historically, at least in the last 50 years or so, or maybe since, I don't know, the 70s, men wore pretty tight clothing. But starting the 80s, men's clothing was not form fitting. It wasn't something that really, like, hugged the body at all. So I think now that those standards are starting to change, of course, we can institute elastic. But... Uh, in a men's clothing. But yeah, that's a really interesting thing to consider. And yet another episode for us to do on just <laughs> in this list. Yeah.
0: Well, I think I mean, you were talking about like menswear being more form-fitting like in the 60s and 70s. And and I think that a lot of that had to do with, you know, it, they were mainly synthetic materials because they were so trendy at the time. But but now we know that a lot of these synthetics are problematic. Um, in a various assortment of ways. And and we talked about this a little bit on our Fashion and Sustainability episode with Tara St. James, but some of these problems, they're not visible to the naked eye. We don't see them right away. Um, and one of the problems with um, some of these things is that a lot of these synthetic fibers, like spandex, um, they're, they're not biodegradable. And when you wash them a lot, um, these little kind of microfibers can come off and they get into the water, our water systems, and they eventually end up in rivers. They eventually end up in oceans and and make their way into the diets of marine life. And this is causing a ton of problems. And NPR cast, you may remember, did a story about this in in 2011. And and they put in this statistic that's kind of mind-boggling, saying that Americans bought... 20.5 billion pieces of clothing that year in 2011. That's just in America. And that 80% of those garments had spandex in them. And nothing has changed from that today. So you can really kind of wrap your brain around why spandex is such a huge, 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 huge business. And that if we don't start paying attention to some of these these ecological issues, um, this impact of the fashion industry
1: and our choices, that it's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, it really, as you said or. Are- marine life it's in the diets of marine life so it already is a huge problem we know that plastic and oceans is a huge problem so now these small microfibers are an even bigger problem but one that you don't always see dress listeners we
0: often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries
1: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
1: So, as a to in a recent article on Vox.com by Brian Resnick, he cites a paper in Environmental Science and Technology that estimates that a, quote, population of 100,000 people would produce approximately 1.02 kilograms of fibers each day. So, that's 793 pounds per year per individual. Wow. So teeny tiny plastic shards that we're producing without really even knowing it. I mean, I know before we did the episode with Tara St. James, I had never considered this. It had never even crossed my mind that just by doing laundry, I was putting these microfibers in and polluting the environment. So uh, a recent study found that 73% of fish caught at mid-steps in the Northwest Atlantic, for instance, had microplastic in their stomachs. So I mean, what is the solution? There, there's really not one easy answer. No, there's not. Um, one thing that. I do practice
0: um, at home, though, and I started doing this before I even knew about the environmental impact of some of this stuff, um, was that I do not put my workout wear that contains spandex or any underwear that contains spandex um, into the dryer. So because that you can, see, like after a while, you can start to see it coming out. So you can actually see it. And and so if, what's happening if you, if you can't even see what's coming out into the wash. So it it happens, right? But but of course, I think I would say that it's it's easy to say to buy only natural fibers. But again, it's not that simple. Um, because especially if eighty percent of clothing in the world is being produced using synthetics, that only limits the world or the responsible world twenty percent. You know, <laughs> I I don't know. You know, and and you know the article also points out Cast, that often synthetic clothing is affordable clothing, um, and it and it shouldn't be quote a luxury to be environmentally conscious. And and we got a lot of listener feedback when we did the sustainable episode with Tara talking about like we want to, to practice sustainability and ethics and our fashion choices, but these brands are more expensive, and and it is true. It's and it's a problem, and it's something that that is being worked on and worked out. You know, it's going to take some time, but, but people are thinking about these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually a really fabulous uh, podcast called Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. She's the I think the environmental or eco editor for Vogue Australia. But she has and an, I, I met actually, her.
0: I met oh, her. You did. Oh, when great. I was in
1: Australia, yeah, oh, we actually
0: we actually drank champagne together in the front row of a fashion show.
1: <laughs> well, perhaps she can come on the show in the future because she has this fantastic podcast. She can, it's cr- crowdsourced, so go out and support her. But she has wonderful, wonderful episodes about um, the environmental impact of the fashion industry, and she has a great episode about this idea that is eco friendly fashion exclusive to just the, you know, the population that can afford it. So she addresses that, of course, but there's also this whole host of issues that are, you know, and this idea that it has to be addressed by everyone collectively. So by consumers and systematically by the supply chain itself. So Hey, textile manufacturers, how about you design fabrics that shed less? There's actually a company I researched and what I found out during my research called Polartex, for instance. They're doing their part to prevent microfiber pollution, and they launched PolarTech Power Air, or they are launching, I'm unclear at this point, and it's the first fabric technology engineered to reduce fiber shedding. And
0: I think Tara St. James mentioned this um, in the episode that we did with her on fashion and sustainability, but there are also things that you can do right now, uh, very inexpensively. Um, You can buy what's called a Cora ball. It's the world's first microfiber catching ball that you can put in with your laundry, which I think— I don't have one, but now I'm going to get on Amazon or wherever (laughs) else they sell them and buy one immediately as we're done recording this episode. I know. It seems like a really, really cool product. But the thing is, Cass, is like there's no one simple fix. Like getting a ball isn't going to change the fact that there are other issues, um, that like the fact that cotton itself is a huge suck on environmental resources, particularly oh, <laughs> in terms of water. I mean, th- go back and listen to that episode that we keep referring to. But just creating one T-shirt or a single pair of jeans, the amount of water that is required um, to grow that cotton is completely insane.
1: Oh, it is. It's, it's shocking, actually, when you realize um, just what goes into the making of just one piece of clothing that we wear. And to think that we collectively consume billions a year and then essentially throw it into the waste is uh, quite alarming. I think as consumers, we can have a huge impact really by just being more aware of what we're putting on our bodies, April and I can really not stress enough the harmful costs of fast fashion. Don't do it. Not just the environmental costs, but the human cost as well. But yes, so the point that eco-friendly, a lot of these eco-friendly, environmentally conscious clothing bands are expensive is a valid point. You know, When you're doing things correctly and consciously, these things cost more money. So a lot of these clothing bands are more expensive, but you can participate in other ways. For instance, you can buy less clothing or you can buy secondhand clothing. Apps like Poshmark, for instance, are making this more and more trendy and more available to so many more people, which is great. Also, I love clothing swaps. I cannot say enough good things about clothing swaps. It's this great way to just, an excuse to bring your girlfriends all together or your boyfriends, bring all your clothing that you were going to donate, uh, and, switch it with your friends. It's so fun. You all bring like a dish or something to drink. I just, I can't say enough good things about it. I highly recommend.
0: Yeah. we I organized one at FIT um, for everybody that works in the library last year. So it was fun. Didn't you also organize the make and mend party? Um, Golden joinery. Yeah. So um, I am one of the founding board members of this organization here in New York which is called Fashion Studies Alliance Um, and it's basically for anybody um, who works in the profession of fashion studies or or like in a related genre fashion designers fashion historians professors anybody but uh, it's basically just like a professional organization Well, we produce events and develop our community because we realized how many of this there were specifically in New York but yeah we did a we did like a a mending party event um, at the textile art center here in Brooklyn a couple months back, and it was really fun. And um, it's actually, um, there's a game that goes along with it, which a textile collective in the Netherlands uh, produced. And it's amazing. And it's based on this concept of called kintsugi, um, which in, in Japanese is this idea that if you break a piece of your porcelain, that you mend it with gold to make the imperfections visible. So we did this whole party and they developed this game around this idea where you mend your your damaged garments using only gold either fabrics or threads so the mends are visible and it was really really fun we had a, we had a great time
1: oh that's a beautiful idea i think you posted some pictures of it too it's really cool yeah Um, So, so many great ways for you to be eco-friendly, affordably eco-friendly. And, you know, so many great uh, organizations out there promoting this as well. We mentioned Claire's podcast, Wardrobe Crisis. There's other podcasts out there. Um, I think there's one called Conscious Chatter. But also, we would be really remiss to not mention that last week was Fashion Revolution Week. So, Fashion Revolution has now become an organization, but it was first a movement that launched a year after the Reina Plaza building collapse in Bangladesh. I think we also talked about that on Tara's episode, but it was this horrific event that killed 1,130 textile workers. I think it injured something like 2,000. And it really just highlighted just the horrific working conditions that these women um, were working in to, you know, bring us our fast fashion garments. And as Fashion Revolution notes on their website, it's really a global
0: movement. It runs all year long. But each year they have this one week where they highlight their hashtag Who Made My Clothes campaign. And uh, the week falls on the anniversary of the fact Drace Collapse, which was on April 24th, in 2013. And the group's mission reads, quote, We want to unite people and organizations to work together towards radically changing the way our clothes are sourced, produced, and consumed so that our clothing is made safe, clean, and in a fair way.
1: So great organization, great mission, and be sure and check them out on at fashion underscore Rev on Instagram or head on over to fashionrevolution.org to learn all about how you can join the movement. And May
0: all of you, our listeners, consider the way that the fabric informs the fit of your jeans next
1: time you get dressed. And remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. And apparently it can sometimes turn into a full-length episode. We like love this. hearing. <laughs> yeah. So we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iHeartMedia.com. You can also message us on Instagram if you would
0: like to pose a question for a Thursday Fashion History Mystery episode. Our handle is at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast Without the Underscore. And last, but certainly not least, we'd like to thank our producers, Casey Pregram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio
1: that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dressed, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.